For the last couple of days, it's been a real blessing to be a part of this community. I've known about you guys for years. I've known David for years. I've known some other leaders here for years. This is the first time I've got to be here. So it's been wonderful. And thank you for the great conversation the last few days and the t-shirt. Hadn't expected that. Um, we've talked about consumerism for the past two days. That's not really what I want to talk about this morning. I want to shift gears a little bit. And I want to talk about worship. When I was a college student, an undergrad, I had a professor of American religion who gave us a really interesting assignment. He had us visit as many churches in town as we could possibly fit into our schedule, but he knew enough about college students that he didn't expect us to actually go to these churches on Sunday morning. He wanted us to visit the churches during the week when they were empty and just sit in their worship space for a little while with our journal and begin to write down everything we could observe about the space. How was the seating set up? What was the visual focus of the space? What symbols were present? What symbols were absent? Whole list of things. And then after making those observations, he wanted us to figure out, based on the architecture and design of the worship space, what did that community believe about God? What was most fascinating were the communities whose written doctrines and beliefs were contradicted by the spaces in which they worshiped. That's sort of a sermon for a different day. But the general message of that, of that sermon, or I'm sorry, that, that assignment was that how we think about God informs how we worship him. But the opposite is also true. That the forms in which we worship him end up informing the way we think about him. So this morning what I want to do is look at three different ways of thinking about God prevalent in our culture today and how they correspond with three ways of worshiping him. One way is the way that the church in North America predominantly thinks and worships God. The second way is the way the culture outside of the church largely thinks about God and worships or fails to worship him. And then the last way is a little bit harder to get your hands around. We'll get to that. But in order to talk about these three ways of worshiping God, we're going to look at a story from the Old Testament about King David. In this one passage in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it covers just a few months of David's life, and yet over that span of time, we see him progressing through all three views of God and three very different ways of worshiping him. So as we look at David's story, I want us to be thinking about how do we view God? What assumptions do we hold about this one who we call creator and Lord, and how does that inform the way we worship him? If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. I, again, don't know how you guys do it in your church, but in my church, when we read God's word, we stand as a way of honoring the God whose scriptures we possess. So will you stand as I read the passage? The other thing we do, I'm just going to take liberties with you this morning, <laughs> is when we finish reading a passage of scripture, the person reading it usually says, this is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God is the response from the congregation. So can we do that this morning? Does that work for you? All right, this is 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim there on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah 
and Ahio, sons of Binadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacom, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there before the ark of God. Then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and with the sound of trumpets. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me give you a little bit of background on this story, because any text without context is a pretext, and that's a really bad way to study the word of God. Chapter 5 is critical to understanding chapter 6. In chapter 5, three very important things happen to David. The first important thing is that David is officially recognized as king over Israel, fulfilling a promise that God had given him long before and ending a long feud with the prior king, Saul. The second key thing that happens to David in chapter 5 is that he conquers Jerusalem and makes it his capital, a strategic stronghold. And the third thing that happens in chapter 5 is that with the help of God, David defeats Israel's greatest enemy at the time, which is the Philistines. So back in chapter 5, everything that could possibly go right for David does. Everything breaks good for him. I mean, it is happy days and sunshine, right? God gives him a promotion. He's officially king. He gives him a new place to live, the stronghold of Jerusalem, and he takes away his biggest pain in his side, which was the Philistines. All this great stuff happens to David. So we wouldn't be surprised that in chapter 6 we read that David wants to celebrate big time all the good things that God has done for him. 30,000 men in this procession, all kinds of musical instruments and cheering and dancing. I don't know about you, but when I have a chapter 5 kind of week, it's pretty easy to come into a place like this on Saturday and sing praises to God. It's our natural response when our life is full of good things. We want to thank someone, and particularly if we have faith in God, that's the person we want to thank. There's a little detail in this story that I got to make sure you guys are aware of. It says that part of David's way of celebrating God was by transporting the ark of God into his new capital, into Jerusalem. So what is the ark? In case you're unfamiliar with this, the ark was basically a 
box, a wooden box about yay big, covered in gold. And on top of this box was a lid with two angels, what we call cherubim, with outstretched wings. And it was believed that the space between these angels, between their wings, was where the presence of God himself dwelt. This ark had been constructed during the time of the Exodus, the time of Moses, and the Israelites carried it with them everywhere they went as a way of bringing God's presence and power with them. Because this box represented the very presence of God and his holiness, God commanded that no one was ever allowed to touch it. Holiness, if you remember, it's a word that means literally to be set apart or distinct. So to show that God was utterly distinct and separate and set apart from anything and anyone else in creation, he forbid anyone to touch this box which represented his presence. He said if anyone touches it, whether they are the king or a priest, even an animal, they will die. Well, how do you move a box that you're not allowed to touch? Creates a bit of a challenge. Well, God instructed them to fasten these golden rings on either side of the box and insert long poles and to carry the ark on the shoulders of priests. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you're familiar with this whole thing, right? That's actually a pretty good depiction of what the ark probably looked like. So David, having experienced all these wonderful blessings of God in chapter 5, decides that I need this God to be with me in my new capital. I want his goodness and his blessings. So he arranges to move the ark, the representation of the presence of God, along the road to be with him in the new capital. And we're told that as this ark moves along, in verse 5, that David and the whole assembly of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. I think this scene, these first five verses of this chapter, really capture how a lot of the church in America thinks about God and therefore thinks about worship. God is the one who gives us victories. God is the one who fights our battles. God is the one who helps us overcome our struggles and our enemies. He's the one who brings goodness and blessing into our lives, and therefore it makes sense that the primary way we would express our relationship to this God is through extravagant celebration, by joyful dancing and singing and clapping. That's what David did. And as I said before, when you've had one of those weeks like David had, where the struggle is taken away, where the job gave you a promotion, where you're given a new house, or whatever the blessing is. If you've had a week like that, it's pretty easy to step in and worship this God who has blessed us so greatly. That's the view of God that's largely promoted in our churches. And I'm not saying it's wrong. He is the source of blessings. He is the source of goodness. And so we want to celebrate him. There's a blog I like to visit somewhat regularly just to... uh, add a little humor into my day. It's written by a guy named John, and the blog is called Stuff Christians Like. It's sort of a spin on Stuff White People Like, if you've seen that blog. Not that I'm recommending that one. But this other one, Stuff Christians Like, is an interesting exploration into the Christian subculture in North America, particularly among sort of white, suburban, affluent Christians. But what he does is he examines different things each day or every couple days, and he lists them numerically of things that Christians like, and then he gives an explanation. So here's a couple examples. Stuff Christians like number 116, using let me pray about it as a synonym for no. (laughs) Don't you want to serve in the nursery? Let me pray about that, right? 
Stuff Christians like number 235, confessing things around campfires. I don't get this one at all. Number 240, Kirk Cameron. I'm not there. Stuff Christians like number 176, giving open flames to children on Christmas Eve. You guys do that here? I don't know if we do at our church. It always scares me with my kids. Uh, Number 11, Thomas Kincaid paintings. Number 216, Precious Moments. Number 46, Super happy, Happy Shiny Christian Radio. Here's the one that actually caught my attention. Stuff Christians like number 437, Living Better. Now let me unpack that. This is what John writes on his blog about living better. He says, my bookshelf is littered with self-help books about focus and attitude and purpose and drive. I think a lot about changing my thoughts and trying to fix the way I look at the world and how I can improve myself. And I want God to slightly improve or enhance my existing life as well. Sometimes I act like the Bible is a self-help book. I treat it like a self-help book for a better marriage, a better attitude at work, and an easier life. I think he captures a popular view of God in our culture. A lot of American Christianity promotes God as the almighty improver. The one who we can bring into our lives to help us fight that battle that we just can't fight on our own. Or sometimes it gets a little bit lower and we merely use God as an instrument to fulfill our personal desires, whether or not those desires are really good ones or not. But we want to invoke God's presence into our lives to help us achieve what we want to achieve, to overcome what we want to overcome, to advance an agenda, sometimes a good one, not always. We tend to view God as almighty improver, the one who makes life better. We see him as a chapter five kind of God. And when that's how we view him, it makes sense that the primary way in which we would express our commitment to this God is through celebration. He's the one who gives us all the good things. So we want to thank him and celebrate him. And that's what David does. With cymbals and harps and trumpets and dancing and shouting, he celebrates all the good things that God has done to him as he transports the presence of God himself into his capital of Jerusalem. But there's a catch. There's a risk at focusing so heavily on God's goodness and blessing that we lose sight of his other attributes. There's a risk that we so focus on God's goodness that we lose sight of his holiness. There's a detail in this story that I've overlooked until now that I want to draw your attention to in verse 3. We're told that as David and this band of people moved the ark, they did so by putting it, it says, on a new cart that was being pulled by oxen. Now remember, God had commanded that this ark being holy, was only to be transported with poles on the shoulders of priests. But somehow David and his companions disregarded that commandment and found it perhaps easier, more convenient to transport this ark on a cart with oxen. Now, it sounds like a small detail, but it's an important one because what it shows was that perhaps David was so caught up in all of God's blessings in all of God's goodness, in the outpouring of God's favor on his life, that he had lost sight of the need to be humble and reverent before this God. He was so busy celebrating God's blessing that he lost sight 
of God's holiness. And this oversight, this sort of casual flippancy with which David was worshiping God results in a tragedy. And it also leads us to our second way of thinking about God and how we worship him. We're told in verse 6 that as this procession moves towards Jerusalem, that one of the ox pulling the cart with the ark on it stumbles. The cart tilts, the ark slips, and one of David's friends, a man named Uzzah, reaches out, perhaps without even thinking about it, just reacts instinctually just reaches out and stops the ark from falling off the cart. He probably thought he was doing something really good, right? He reaches out, he touches the ark to prevent it from falling, and God strikes him dead. You know, it's stories like this that give the Old Testament a really bad reputation. (laughs) Think about it. An innocent mistake Uzzah probably intended something very good. He didn't want to see the ark of God crash to the ground and shatter. He may have not had any premeditation whatsoever in his action. How can you hold somebody responsible for that? He just reaches out and grabs it, prevents it from falling, and God strikes him dead? Now, I can sit here and blow smoke at you and come up with all kinds of explanations for why God decides to kill Uzzah. Theological explanations about God's holiness or pragmatic explanations about how God was trying to teach his people a lesson, all kinds of, you know what, I'm not going to do that because I don't think that's really the heart of this story. And I think you're more intelligent than that and I'm not going to try to kid you and make you think I actually understand this story. I don't. But here's what I do know is that when I read a story like this, it makes me angry because it doesn't seem right we got to be honest, sometimes there are parts of the Bible that when we read them and we look at what God does, it just doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't seem right, and our instinct might be anger. We don't know what to do with stuff like this. If that's how you react to a story like this in 2 Samuel chapter 6, I actually think you're closer to understanding this story than many others. Because you're not alone in your anger. In verse 8, we read that David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. David was angry. Put yourself in David's sandals for a second. You've just come off the greatest chapter of your life. God, for some reason, has chosen you, a lowly shepherd, to become king over his people. And then when all kinds of enemies arise to prevent you from becoming king, God wipes them out for you, takes away every obstacle. Then God gives you the greatest strategic stronghold in the Middle East, Jerusalem, to be your capital. Blessing after blessing after blessing God pours out upon you. And then the moment you try to honor him, he turns around and kills your friend. David's angry. This doesn't make sense. And David's anger, we're told, soon turns to fear. Verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. This enormous celebration, 30,000 people in procession and singing and dancing, 
boom, it's over. Nothing kills a good party like God's wrath, <laughs> right? It's over. And where David had been full of excitement and joy, he now finds himself buried under the burden of anger and fear. And so he decides that this God, I'm not so sure I want him with me anymore. I'm not sure I can handle having this unpredictable deity living right next to me in Jerusalem. So I'm going to put him aside. I'm going to leave him at the house of the Gittite. We live in a culture today in which seven out of ten people say that they believe in an almighty, all-powerful creator God who is still engaged actively in the world. So despite all the popularity of books on atheism and how God is a delusion and all that sort of stuff, over 70% of our population still believes in the existence of an almighty, all-powerful God who created all things, who is still actively engaged in the world. But despite over 70% of people believing that, on any given weekend, only about 12 to 14% of North Americans worship any God. So how do you explain this gap? Between 70 and 80% believe in this God, but only a tiny fraction of them actually worship him. Well, I think David's experience with God on the road to Jerusalem and his decision to push him aside to the Gittites' house sort of exemplifies how a lot of our culture thinks about God. A lot of our culture believes that God exists They're just not sure that this God is on their side. And so they'd rather just put him aside, ignore him. They may acknowledge his power but doubt his goodness, or they may see his activity in the world and fear his wrath. And so in the end, they just decide, I don't want anything to do with this God. I'm just going to go on without him. And they put him aside at the Gittite's house. In our culture, when you look at it from a higher altitude, there's plenty of things that just don't make sense to us, things that apparently God either does or allows that we just can't make heads or tails of. Recent history, 9-11, or how about wars that we may not agree with, injustices in our cities and in our schools, crime, violence, senseless kinds of stuff just heard about the terrible murders of that couple in Florida this week who spent their lives caring for mentally handicapped kids. Genocide, places like Sudan, Rwanda. You know, you can go, well, you know, the crime is not God's fault. It's because people do that. And you know, some of these genocides happen because governments are corrupt or whatever. Fine, you know what? You spend five minutes with somebody who is skeptical about God in meaningful conversation, and before too long, they immediately will bring up the objection, but what about all the evil in this world? How do you explain that if there's a good, all-loving God? Some things just don't make sense. And when we look at the world around us, it makes us angry. And if we dwell on that anger long enough, it makes us afraid. And so we decide, I don't want anything to do with this God. Now, let's bring it down to another level. We can talk about all the atrocities in our world and in our culture and all the injustice, but for many of us, it's far more personal than that. 
Russell Baker was a columnist for the New York Times for many years, and he wrote a lot about his childhood. He wrote a lot about how his father died when he was just a boy. In one of his columns, he said this. After his father died, he wrote, I never cried again with any real conviction, nor expected much of anyone's God except indifference. He experienced deep personal pain in his life and questioned the goodness of God and just put him aside. I'm 33 years old. I know this is in general a younger congregation. Our generation, the younger generation, has experienced so much pain on a personal level. We come from more broken homes, more abusive homes, more drug and alcohol addiction, more injustices from the hands of corrupt government or institutions than pretty much any generation in American history. We are a very angry generation. And I'll tell you where I see it the most. I see it in the sarcasm of our generation. Sarcasm is really just a sociably acceptable form of venting our anger in a witty way. We are the generation that created The Daily Show. We are the generation that would rather read The Onion than The New York Times. That's all sarcasm. We want to poke fun and make everything that was once sacred and important irreverent because we are so burned by every authority in our lives, whether that is our parents or our schools or our institutions of government, that we just don't believe in the importance of anything anymore. Under the witty sarcasm of our generation is a seething anger that goes all the way up to our view of God. We're just not sure about his goodness either. And so we put him aside. We leave him at the Gittites' house. So we've got these two popular views of God and worship. On the one hand, we have the view of God that's promoted by much of the American church, and that is the God of almighty improvement, the one who helps us through life, who's full of blessing and goodness, and who will help us through our struggles, who will get us that promotion, who will help us conquer the next enemy. And that's reflected in our worship, which is about celebration and joy and triumph. And then over here, you have the popular view of our culture, which is not focused on God's goodness, but on his mystery. This God that we just can't understand or explain because of the things that happen in our world that just don't make sense to us. They really emphasize his holiness, his separateness, his distinctness. They may acknowledge his power, but they question his goodness. And so they leave him aside, and they're skeptical. Now, if you're standing over here, full of pain and brokenness, either on a personal level or a cultural level, you're skeptical about God and his goodness, and you look over there at the church, celebrating and always talking about his goodness and how great life is, how are you going to respond to that? Is it any wonder why people in our culture say the church is out of touch and irrelevant? And if you're standing over here, maybe you spent your whole life in the church and it's all rah-rah and good times and isn't God great and underneath you realize my life's actually a mess and I'm not so sure about this whole thing and you look over there at the culture that's full of sarcasm and anger and you go, you know what, I actually think they might be right. But I'm not sure I can say that in my church. Well, thankfully, there's a third option. 
one that is neither focused on anger and sarcasm and disillusionment, but isn't Pollyanna-ish either about the reality of God in the world. That third option is the one that David found. We're told in verse 11 that the ark stayed at the Gittite's house for about three months and that the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, we don't know exactly what this blessing was, but fill in the blank. It's good stuff. (laughs) Then in verse 12, we read this. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So David gets news that the ark is at this guy's house and everything that's going on in this guy's life is just all good stuff. And David probably is reminded of why he wanted the ark with him in the first place. He's reminded of chapter 5, all the blessings that God poured out upon him. And so he decides, all right, I'm going to try this thing again. I'm going to bring the presence of God from that guy's house to my house. And once again, there's singing and excitement and music. Look at verse 15. We're told that David danced before the Lord with all of his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and with the sound of trumpets. Now, this verse 14 and 15 looks an awful lot like verse 5 earlier, right? Extravagant celebration, dancing, shouting, singing. But something's changed. An important detail again that you need to see. And this time it's in verse 13. It says that when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he, that's David, sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. All right. What does that mean? Two important details here. The first thing you got to notice is that the ark is no longer on a cart being pulled by ox. It's being carried We assume on the shoulders of priests, the way God had commanded. David had learned his lesson. He wasn't going to be flippant about the presence of God anymore. He was going to take this God seriously. And the second detail is it says David sacrificed a bull and a calf. Now, the language gets kind of muddled when it translates from Hebrew to English, but some scholars believe that what the language actually means to communicate is that every six steps on the journey from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem, every six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a calf. Now, that seems kind of wacky. I know we don't sacrifice animals in church and stuff anymore. But in that culture, in that day, your herds, your animals were sort of the sign of your wealth. It was uh, the currency of the day, if you will. So for, for David to sacrifice his herds of bulls and calves was a way of honoring God out of the abundance of goodness God has bestowed onto him. Notice how the worship looks different this time around. There is still celebration, but there's also sacrifice. There is extravagant rejoicing, but there there is also reverence for God's holiness. David's view of God had matured. This God wasn't just the one who bestows blessings on me. He's also the God who is beyond my comprehension. He is the God beyond my control. And so my worship of him isn't just about celebrating his goodness, but also acknowledging his holiness. 
He brings the two together. Annie Dillard writes in one of her books about worship and the missing component she sees, at least in a lot of the churches she had been a part of. This is what she writes. Why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour? Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we are invoking? It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. She's articulating what David learned, that this God is not just a God of blessing and goodness. He is also a God of holiness and mystery that we cannot possibly control or contain. As the writer of Hebrews commands us, we are to offer God worship that is acceptable, that is full of reverence and awe, because our God is a consuming fire. So what does worship look like that is both full of celebration and sacrifice, that is both reverent and rejoicing? What does that look like? I don't know. I'm pretty sure that what David did 3,000 years ago with sacrificing animals and carrying golden boxes doesn't really translate to our culture today. The reality is that what passes for reverence and what passes for celebration, what passes for sacrifice and what passes for joy in different cultures and different settings looks different. So I don't want to come in here and prescribe that this is what sacrifice looks like and this is what celebration looks like because it's not on the level of behaviors that I really want to talk to you today. You guys figure that out for your own community and in your own setting. What I'm more concerned about is the attitude of our hearts. Do you come to worship merely looking for a feel-good environment? Do you come to worship merely when you have a chapter five kind of week and everything's breaking great for you? Or do you come to worship also with a sense of awe and wonder and humility and reverence before the God who created you, the God who redeemed you, and the God who you cannot contain because he is a consuming fire? I think this is in part what Jesus meant in John chapter 4 when he said that his father seeks worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. It means worshiping God in the truth of who he is. Yes, he is our loving father who blesses us and the source of all good things. But he is also our holy creator, different and set apart from anything else in the universe. We need to worship God out of the truth of who he is. But I think there's another piece to this whole idea of worshiping God in truth. It isn't just worshiping God in the truth of who he is, but it's worshiping God out of the truth of who we are. David felt great early on about all the blessings he had received, and so he worshiped God and celebrated the goodness he had experienced in his life. But you know what? David came back, and he also worshiped God in his anger and in his fear. Some of you this morning, I give you a great deal of credit for being here. If you are having a week or a season of life in which you are doubting God's goodness, in which you are experiencing injustice, and in where you are grieving the pain of loss or abuse or brokenness, 
God calls you to worship him in that as well. With your questions and your doubts and your angers and your fears, we worship God in the truth of who we are. And we need to make space in our communities for people, whether they are celebrating or whether they are grieving. When you read the Psalms, how many of them are about celebrating God and how many of them are about where are you? That's the fullness of the human expression of communion with the divine. If you are here this morning and you're celebrating God's goodness, great. If you're here this morning and you're questioning his goodness, I'm glad you're here. Hopefully you can connect with another brother or sister who can remind you of his goodness and can support you in the challenge that lays ahead for you. We are to worship God in spirit and in truth, celebration and sacrifice, reverence and rejoicing. Let me tell you, if we become communities of believers who do that and who reveal that God, no one in our culture is going to say you're out of touch or irrelevant anymore. I want to end with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Lewis said a lot of brilliant things, and he wrote a lot of brilliant things, and one of my most favorite things that he wrote comes from a children's story, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with it. If you know the story in this uh, tale, there are four children who are venturing through this weird land called Narnia where all the animals talk, and there's this character named Aslan, and Aslan represents Jesus in Lewis's story. And the children are gathered, and they're about to meet Aslan, and they learn that Aslan is not a man, but actually a lion. And one of the children says, oh, I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, says Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asks Lucy. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. We so desperately need to encounter the God who is not safe, but who is good. And this is the God that our broken, cynical, hurting culture needs to experience through the presence of his people. And if we do that, we will learn what true worship is, and we will be that church that shines on the hill, that draws all nations in for the healing that Christ alone can bring. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we honor you this morning as the source of all good things. And I pray that you would receive our worship, those of us who have experienced your goodness in the last days, as we thank you for your blessings, which we do not deserve, but which you freely give. And Lord, we also honor you as the Holy One, the one beyond our comprehension, whom we don't understand fully. For who has searched out your paths and who has been your counselor? We do not understand everything that happens in this world. We don't 
always understand why you allow tragedy, brokenness, and pain to continue. And still we trust that at the end, you will redeem all things. You will heal all things. You will reconcile all things. And we shall celebrate the consummation of your redemption. So I pray for my brothers and sisters who right now are experiencing the brokenness and pain of this world that through your spirit and in the truth of who they are, they would also worship you with their questions and their doubts. Dwell among us as your people. Draw us to yourself. And may you teach us what it means to truly worship. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.